Provoke podcast is brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy-to-use PR software. Get a free demo today at Notified.com. Welcome to the Provoke Media Podcast. I'm Arthi Shaw, Executive Editor for Provoke Media and your host for today's episode. So today's episode is being recorded the day after we had Provoke North America, which was um, which is our summit, our regional PR summit. Um, it was our eighth summit, but our first time that we had gone fully virtual. And so I have with me today, Aaron Strout, who is CMO of the W2O Group. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you, Arthi. Happy to be here. Thank you. And so Aaron and I have this tradition of, um, of debriefing on a podcast after some of our big events. Um, I suppose we didn't, I think the last time that you and I did this was with Provoke Global 2019. So we have actually haven't done this in a year. No, and I think uh, at least one of the times we did it in the room that you're sitting in right now, yes. which was lovely to be together and um, almost as lovely to do it virtually, but I do prefer the face-to-face when we can swing it. Totally. I Yes, exactly. I was just thinking that today, how, how nice it would, it, would, it would be to do this over, over coffee together in the same room. Um, so what we're going to do on today's podcast is we're just going to go through the event. And for those of you that, that, that were able to attend, you can, you can you know, refresh some of the highlights. And for those of you that were not, um, this will be your sort of Cliff Notes version of the, of the event. So first of all, Aaron, I want to get your thoughts, because of course, like I said, this is the first time we have gone fully 100% virtual um, for this particular event. I don't want to, as you all probably know, all of our events um, went virtual after March of 2020 last year. Um, but what, what was your thoughts, Aaron? Because you, you've attended every single one of these events, I think, for the past eight years. So what did, what, what did you think about it going fully virtual? Yeah, it's funny. I hadn't thought of that, but I have. And um, what I will tell you is, I think the last few that I've done this, it's a great forcing function because I did have to, I'm West Coast, like Arthi is. I had to be up at 6.30, even though uh, I did not have to be on camera. So got up so I could listen to all the content. And I did listen to all the content. I had to go back and listen to a little bit after the fact. But it was really nice to be able to have that. I like the length of it. I thought you did a great job. You you hit the sweet spot in terms of not overdoing the number of panelists. I think one of the things we've found is shorter is better when you're doing virtual. So, you know, 15, 20, 30 minute spots and then keeping it really to three-ish people if you can help it too, if it's a fireside chat. Uh, I don't know as though I've seen a lot of keynotes yet. And I, I think I still like the physical engagement that you get, you know, in a virtual environment. But I also liked how you ran it contiguously. So it wasn't, you know, you ran the room, you stopped, you had to jump off and do another room. We, we ran our JP Morgan event like that recently and it worked out fine, but it does, it is a little bit jarring and you drop off some people, right? Cause they don't yeah. stay there and you as moderators and it helped, I think that you had mostly moderators from provoke, but sort of coming in at the end of someone's session, thanking them, maybe doing like a quick one sentence recap and leaning into the next session. It made them really feel like they flowed into each other. Uh, it was nice to have a little bit of a, a break because, you know, we do have to have our bio breaks or, you know, respond to a couple of quick emails. So in general, I thought it was a really nice, uh, well done, good speakers, most of them, you know, really thoughtful. Uh, not that anyone was bad, but certainly there were some that were really, um, really thought provoking and, and some heavy hitters there, which I really appreciated. 
Yeah, well, you know, you hit on, on all the key points. And for anyone who's listening, this isn't really just about, about our event. I mean, it's about, you know, what works well as we've, you know, pivoted online and we've had a year of learnings now, right? right. Um, you know, the, the, our biggest, the biggest snafu for me was, yeah, realizing that that it was a very early morning for the West Coast. And, um, you know, it, what, you know, realizing that I had to be on camera at, at 6.30 in the morning, my time was, uh, was this moment where I thought, wait a second, this, this, this doesn't make sense. So I can assure all of our listeners that if we do this event virtually again, we will readjust the time zones so that um, our start time will be a more reasonable hour for the West Coast. Um, yeah, we appreciate that, that. that on the West Coast. <laughs> yes, and 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 just kind of some key takeaways, just for folks more broadly. Um, yeah, I think I think one of the things we've learned is is less people on camera is better for virtual events. You're trying, you know, you can cram five people on a stage for a live event, and because they can work off of each other's body language um, and take cues from each other, it it, it can work. But for for Zoom, um, yeah, we found that smaller is better, and also I felt like every session I sort of wanted a little bit more. And I think that's always better, especially with, with an online format, when you're kind of left with, oh, wow, we could have kept talking about that versus like having something drag, you yeah. know, so. Um, well, there's, a, there's a joke where, you know, it's like, if you're writing, it's like, if I had more time, I would have written less. Yes. And I do believe in that power of editing. And I do believe in sort of leaving people wanting more because I think 45 minutes, 60 minutes is a lot of time to cover. I know because I've done some of those sessions as a moderator and it is nice to be able to facilitate audience questions. But I think while you had an engaged audience, people were more in sort of watch mode versus asking questions mode. And sometimes it also can be a little disruptive because when you have a pre-scripted conversation with these experts and you only have 30 minutes or 25 yeah. minutes, you really hit on the high points and not that you don't want to honor what other people want to ask, but some people are better at asking questions than others, right? And if you get someone that wants to rat hole you, that can be disruptive to the whole session. You know, that's a that is a good point. And um, but but even you know thinking about engagement, I mean that that was of course the big upside that we've all seen going going virtual is people can can participate from not only around the country but around the world. And we saw that yesterday. And you know, and also you know just in, as as Aaron and I start talking about the sessions, um, there wasn't there was no one sector that really dominated the the agenda and again we do see that when we have when we host these in, in you know in individual cities you know the san francisco event tends to lean more towards tech chicago tends to lean more towards you know cpg and then and new york tends to be a little bit more media heavy so this year we kind of saw all of those areas collide which was kind of fun as well um so I guess on that note, let's, let, let's talk about the day. Do we want to just go through every session and just kind of talk about what, what was our biggest takeaway? Yeah, yeah, I made some notes. And I think, um, you know, every one of them had some, some nice takeaways. And I would encourage people, because I went back and looked at this as well, uh, if you haven't already, go to Twitter. And I think you used the hashtag ProvokeNA. Was that mm -hmm. the, the yep. right hashtag? Um, go through that, and you can see a lot of the nice highlights that both you know, provoke and other um, uh, sponsored companies as well as some of the participants added into the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we 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 kind of pulled out some of the some of the key quotes and as in on in addition to that, um, we also on our site now have the the news summaries from from all of the sessions, so you can look at that as well. And I think I think fingers crossed by next week we'll have the sessions also the full sessions um, on our YouTube channel as well. So. 
um, there will, there's, this is again, another upside of these virtual events, right? There's just so many more ways to engage with the content. Um, so, so the first event, the first session rather was, this was, this one was sponsored by, M by MSL and it was um, fresh perspectives on influence and innovation. And it featured um, a brand manager, a brand experience manager from KitchenAid and, and another com communications lead from um, Buick. I think she did like GMC um, in Cadillac as well. Yep. So this one was intentionally, we had, you know, we had, we had more diversity in terms of seniority within organizations this year. And this one was intentionally much more tactical. We had much more, you know, sort of tactical speakers um, because, you know, while the strategic perspective is really, really good, sometimes it's really nice to get into the trenches with folks who are dealing with, especially when we're talking about emerging platforms like TikTok and Clubhouse and things like that, you know, the folks who are sort of in it day to day. Um, so we saw that reflected in, in, in this conversation. And, and, and my biggest takeaway was how these, these brands in, you know, on, that we had on stage, um, GMC, or sorry, General Motors um, and, and KitchenAid, how they embraced risk um, because of the pandemic in a way that they would not have um, if they weren't forced to. Yeah, and I, I like this session. I did feel like, and I think I pointed this out to you that I felt like uh, juxtaposed against particularly the next ses session, um, it did feel a little bit, you know, more tactical and it definitely was led by a little bit of a younger crowd. But that said, there were some um, good perspectives. Um, the woman from um, uh, Sophia Costable, or however you say her name, apologies, Sophia, mm -hmm. if I'm butchering your name, from KitchenAid really did talk about what the pandemic did and it forced a lot of innovation, particularly in the kitchen, right? And people baking. And so that forced them to think differently about their social media mix and how people were digesting it. And we do have different platforms. TikTok was one of them. And then I really loved what um, Iman Jefferson, who is the woman from uh, Chevy and, and GM and what she was talking about. And that was their approach. And it's really this idea, and it's not a novel idea per se, but a lot of particularly regulated industries do fall into this category of risk aversion. And she said, we essentially set aside, I think budget and time for these tests. And they're okay if these tests fail, right? I think you want these tests to sort of succeed or fail fast, but you try things. And because you have a specific agenda and the purpose is to try them, then they have this safe space to do these things versus some big companies, and they are a big company, mm -hmm. where they don't want to do innovative things because it's like, well, what if it doesn't go well? So I think if you position it that way, it works. And so I really, I overall, I loved you know who she was and her approach, but I loved that sort of style and that thinking and knowing that a company that big and that sits in a fairly heavily regulated industry was taking that approach was, um, it was refreshing to hear. Yeah, and I think the, the, the big takeaway to me also was, you know, the fact that like basically COVID spurred this sort of brand TikTok revolution, right? I mean, I think, I think Sophia had mentioned that before, before the, the pandemic, you know, leadership was a little bit hesitant around TikTok. They weren't sure. They just wanted to test the waters. And then suddenly, you know, TikTok became this lifeline. And I think that the moderator from, from MSL pointed out that, you know, when, 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 when everybody finished Netflix and Hulu, they, they went to, to TikTok to consume, to consume content. And how you know TikTok is so much less about social networking and more about this content consumption, right? And and it's and it's really feel good content. You know, it started out with lots of musical numbers and and even when really scary things were happening, you know, around the the pandemic and and even you know around the the Black Lives Matter movement, 
even all the way through the ins insurrection, is somehow TikTok managed to make you think about things in a way that, you know, was different than um, than kind of other forms of media that you would you would consume. I don't want to say it was lighthearted, but there was an irreverence, I think, to sort of what was happening. Yeah. Um, over the last 12 months when you, you know, on TikTok, I mean, even think about the way comedians have been using TikTok to kind of shine the light on the absurdity of some of the things that are happening or the arguments that some people are making. Um, and yeah, so I, I thought that, you know, that, that TikTok, you know, the, the, the pandemic sort of forced brands to embrace TikTok, even ones that maybe were hesitant before. Yeah, and they did touch on Clubhouse as well and no yep. one had the right answer, but I did like that they broached that subject and, you know, mentioned that a lot of brands are just listening and watching and waiting because while there is a first mover advantage, there's also the disadvantage of jumping in and committing time and resources and then, you know, having it blow up in your face or having it go away. And so I think there will be some people, we're talking to some of our clients about it. We're doing some experiments around it, but I like that they at least brought it up and they were thinking about it for two very well-established brands. And it was funny, just as a sidebar to TikTok, Arthi, with the awards last night, I think if I'm remembering correctly, the second sort of um, best, the runner-up to the, the overall innovation award, right, Saber Award, was Mucinex, and it was for a TikTok that they did that was kind of a cool implementation of that, so. Very, very cool. And so if anyone, I mean, I recommend um, if you haven't, if you're not familiar with the campaign, you can see our winners list and, um, and, and look into that because, I mean, the, the judges were just floored with that one. Um, I think we had another TikTok one. We had um, Chipotle, I think, for their TikTok during the yeah, they, they were less surprising. I was, yeah. you know, I thought what Lippy Taylor did and not surprised with our friend Paul Dyer, <laughs> uh, former colleague and, and friend that, you know, they were innovative in how they took the approach. But it was definitely a little bit of a surprise for a Mucinex versus, yes. you know, a Chipotle, which, again, a brand taking a risk. But uh, I loved I loved the thinking. And one thing, one last thing I'll say on that is, you know, and, and I, Paul Dyer is amazing. He knows this. Um, but there's obviously somebody within Mucinex who's doing something very, very right. Because if you notice, Mucinex was actually on the Best in Show countdown twice yes. with two different agencies. Yes. Um, well, it was actually several agencies. One was with Lippy Taylor, and then the other one, there were, there were several um, involved. So I, I remember when I saw that, I thought someone inside of Mucinex is doing a very good job. So whoever that person is, we are going to identify them, and they'll probably be on our Innovator 25 this year. Um, so you know, let, let's talk about the next session now. Um, and I think this one, let me get the exact name of it was um it was sponsored by Zeno and I think it was about the ESG frenzy and what was really interesting is it it felt like most of the conversation was spent really parsing out the difference between ESG and CSR and why companies are moving more towards ESG in favor of CSR yeah and I I really liked it and actually this is one of my favorite sessions and I thought you know you know that I love you moderating and we'll get to some of the sessions that you did but Paul Holmes also does such a nice job. I think a little bit of his, you know, he's been around and doing this for so long. And at the same time, he has a little bit of a skeptical nature and he's not afraid to let that sort of, you know, bleed through. And so um, he does he does push people and he asks difficult questions. And I think that that was helpful. I would like to just spell out because I knew what the concept was, but I'm a big believer in not just leaving acronyms out there, but, you know, yes. without explaining them. So ESG is environmental, social, and governance. Mm -hmm. uh, CSR is corporate social responsibility. I'm sure most people listening in know exactly what those things are, but uh, there are some people that may not. So I, the thing that I really liked is there was a question that Paul asked, and it was from um, Charlotte from Lenovo. 
and it was about Black Lives Matter. And it was about this idea of how much of a force, you know, these movements place upon CEOs and companies to respond. And he was asking her about this. And one of her, her answers I thought was incredibly transparent and probably not popular, but it did shine a light on things. And she said, look, a lot of these things, particularly around Black Lives Matter, were U.S.-led. And you noticed that the campaigns or the efforts that were put behind them were with companies that were sort of based in the U.S. The way Lenovo looks at things, because they're a global company, even though they have a big presence, presence in the United States, is how much of an impact is this having in a variety of local markets? And as such, how measured are we in that regard? Because not that they didn't care about Black Lives Matter, not that they didn't see a value, but they didn't want to over course correct into something just like they wouldn't in New Zealand, they wouldn't in Japan, they wouldn't in Yugoslavia, right? So I think it was a very mindful approach to that because a lot of times, you know, we do feel like, oh, why are you not participating? And how dare you not participate? And sometimes people don't think about the fact that everything doesn't revolve around the United States. And we are a global company. That's a difficult challenge that you have to face, whether you like that response or not. So I really loved, you know, kudos to her for that. Yeah, no, I, I thought, and I think, I think what she said on, on, on stage was that, you know, basically, I mean, they didn't feel like they had the credibility to be the loudest voice in the room on this matter. So they, so they did kind of take a, take a back seat. And, and I think that that candor was really, really refreshing, especially at a moment where it felt like, you know, every brand wanted to kind of raise their hands and say, you know, we're doing, you know, we're doing good on this front. Um, and I, I also liked the way that Charlotte kind of explained how at Lenovo, they thought about CSR versus ESG. And I think, her quote was, you know, CSR from our standpoint was very navel gazing and focused internally. So ESG was very much an outside in view. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that, that really stood out to me from this conversation, I think Paul mentioned this, is how the risk equation has shifted. You know, it used to be, oh, you know, it's, it, it's too risky to take a stance on this particular issue or this particular issue. But now the conversation seems to be, is it too risky not to take a stance? Um, and I think that's a really, really notable shift. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I mean, like I said, I just, I, I I was walking my dog at the time. So this is the other benefit of, or non-benefit of being West Coast, but not having to be, you know, camera ready and all that is I did have my earbuds in and was listening to it. And uh, I, it just, it was, it was a very, I, if, if you don't listen to any other one, I'll make a plug for the one that uh, my CEO did, but I'd make a plug for this one. Like I really, really felt like, there was so much meat and meaning to it and not that there aren't always, but this one in particular, I felt like really went deep and really touched on purpose and, you know, hit on a lot of these elements that you just don't hear people discuss in, in the depth that they did. So, right. and that's part of, by the way, back to our three people versus two people, you know, mm -hmm. versus four people. I felt like they were able to have more of a conversation and Paul really was able to drive that conversation. Um, so I felt like it, he really got a lot out of that, that team. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and most of I think pretty much everything is is a thirty minute conversation. I mean, I know the keynote is there's a fifteen minute and a thirty minute, but but there really isn't isn't a single conversation that's more than thirty minutes. So so you, you should listen to everything that you can. But according to Aaron, this is the this is the one. So that, that that takes us into the next session because that the next session robots won't take your job, but AI can help you perfect your pitch. I ended up liking this session like a lot, um, and I think I just found it to be super inspiring. And I think like, I loved how John Seabrook sort of started um, the conversation. So this one was, was sponsored by, by Profit, um, which is kind of a spinoff um, 
of, of NBC. It's being run by Aaron Quitkin, who you all probably know is founder and CEO of, of, of KWT, um, as, it, as, it, as it's called now. And it had John Seabrook, who's a writer for The New Yorker, and in 2019 did a piece on um, AI-assisted writing and what's the potential. And one of his early quotes was, AI writing is going to make human writing more valued sort of like how mass-produced clothes make couture more valuable. Um, and then he sort of reassured everybody that, look, AI is not going to take your jobs, but it is going to free humans up to doing the things that humans are good at instead of these meaningless tasks. And even, even like I think some, one example that um, Sarah Bruning Marin from IBM pointed out was like some of this stuff like, like putting together a press release on some logistical event, right? Or financial statements. I mean, like some of this stuff, like we don't necessarily need humans to do, we just need to sort of plug in the information and you can kind of spit something out and maybe we can start using humans to doing some of the more thoughtful, um, you know, writing that requires right. some kind of analysis. Well, yeah, and as I was listening, I actually re-listened to it today because I, I did listen to it, but I wanted to refresh myself on some of the finer points. <clears throat> a couple of things that I thought were interesting, you know, we're seeing this behavior already with bots, right? So mm -hmm. a lot of companies have put bots out there. Their goal is to answer the easy questions and then hand you off to a human being when your easy questions don't get answered. I'd argue that a lot of companies still don't quite get to how that works because you get handed off to the human and they have no, or most of them don't acknowledge the fact that they saw any of your, you know, yes. querying and that's mm -hmm. frustrating, right? Um, but it also led to something that was interesting, which was, I think a few of the panelists, I know that, um, sorry, I'm just checking my notes here, that Sarah had mentioned this and John mentioned this as well, is they're okay with this, but they love the transparency of when am I being responded to by a human being versus a computer? And I thought, you know, I appreciate that too, because even in the chat bots, I want to know, am I talking to someone that's got human context? I'm okay if I'm not, but I just want to know. So when I'm asking the questions that will help me formulate it. And they did touch, you know, you're right on the financial reporting that sometimes if it's just sort of a very rote briefing, um, it doesn't need any context laid on top of it. It really just needs that these are the facts. This is what we took. We digested it. Here you go. I think the last point I'll make is, you know, it could actually help a lot of, for PR specific, help with a lot of pitches because we know one of the things where people fall down is they want to do this. Um, spray and pray methodology. Let me get this out to 200 reporters. Mm -hmm. It won't be customized. It's our news. I don't care if you're really a fit or not. It's guess what? We've got the news. So think about the fact of AI or machine language assisted. So Arthi, if I wanted to pitch you and another say 50 reporters and it said, let's go back and look at Arthi's last 10 stories. Are there any stories that have any of the keywords in it that I actually care about? You know, how long has Arthi been at Provoke for? Does she traditionally cover this or what are the areas? Like, have Arthi and I, like, look at our CRM. Have Arthi and I interacted in the last year or so or two years so I can maybe say, put some personal quote here. Imagine that intelligence being brought forward to me as the PR person. And then I want to do the pitch. And it's like, oh, okay, I see that she's written three stories on sustainability. She and I had coffee six months ago. I can acknowledge that. Uh, reminder that she has a son named Lincoln. And, you know, ho hopefully I can say that. I think you said that publicly before. But you get my point, right? And so it doesn't have to be the computer that writes it, but the computer can make us much better at what we do. And I think that's that was an interesting dialogue to think about. 
it's finding the right places. And I think that was the premise of it is, is that computers or robots aren't going to take our job. Right. They can make our jobs better and push the things that we do as humans up the value chain. So when we are spending time, it's not on these road sort of, um, you know, deep in the weeds kind of activities, they're sort of synergizing and putting the polish on top of what's already been collected. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think Sarah, I think mentioned that really well, but she said, you know, the, the dirty secret is that there is a lot of work that's done in PR that doesn't require a lot of human intelligence, right? I mean, so much of, there is a, a lot, there's a lot of grunt work, right? And if we can start freeing up humans, you know, in our industry, especially at the junior levels, because sometimes, I mean, from, from speaking to people, I know sometimes that can be a turnoff for people when they first join the industry. They're like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm not doing any of the interesting things I thought I would be doing. Um, I'm just kind of weighed down on all of this like database management and, you know, briefing docs and all of that. Um, so, I mean, it, you know, there could even be implications for, you know, retention, right? If, if you can kind of bring people in and take some of that off their plate and they can really start getting into kind of the meaty stuff that they, that they wanted to, um, you know, the storytelling and all of that. And I think that's the other piece, right? Like, as of right now, AI cannot identify what the story is. And one of the things John Seabrook said was, you know, he's interested in the story. He doesn't want to hear about, you know, some, and again, this is New Yorker specific, but I, I don't think he's alone in this, right? Don't just throw a bunch of data at him or, you know, say, hey, we, you know, write about this person. He wants to know, like, what, what's the crux of it? Why? Like, what's the story? And, and while, you know, the way that the New Yorker tells stories, of course, is different than, than other publications, but I think that's a grain of truth that all PR people can, can think about. And, and AI at this point can't do that. It can configure facts and figures and even probably tell you, like, here's the, the data trend. Um, but, the, but it can't go to that next level and say, but why something matters? You know, what's the story? What, one last thing I'll say about this panel was, um, John, to, to your point, Aaron, about the spray and pray approach, John said one of his fears is, you know, if people become so comfortable with AI and they just kind of input a bunch of data and then throw, throw a pitch out, he said right now he gets 200 PR pitches a day and will, with AI, will he get 2,000 pitches a day? Because that would be counterproductive um, to the you know, industry. Like, you know, I mean, the whole point is to be more targeted and focused and not to say, oh my God, now that I can put all this data in, I can just reach even more people. Guess what, John? I'm going to respond directly to you and your concern. AI can work for you as well, and it already does to some degree with your spam, but think about a smarter tool that says, A, did a human send this or a robot? B, did they hit on the key facts? Did they get your name right? Did they touch on any previous coverage? So I think, you know, I'm being a little cheeky, but you could take that same argument and say, we could make our jobs easier. We already are to some degree by filtering these things out and maybe bringing like Cortana, which is a function, I think of Teams and Microsoft still hasn't quite nailed it, but they try to give you a daily digest of like, hey, I know you've got a, got a meeting. This is an attachment that got mentioned and bring some of those things to the surface, right? So think of a Cortana-like object that could make life easier for reporters as they're getting pitched by machines and uh, account people. Yeah. So, so let's, let's go to the, let's go to the keynote of the day. And this one was sponsored by W2O. Um, and it was about, you know, how the global pandemic has basically changed healthcare. And one of the things that was so evident to me, and I will say, so I, I moderated this, this panel and it was a, it was a two part so the first 15 minutes, I did a, a fireside chat directly with Jim Weiss, your, your founder and CEO, um, really just to kind of get his take on what's happened over the last 12 months and what should we be excited about, not just as communicators, but as humans who you know, consume healthcare. Um, 
And then, and then we opened the panel up to, to and we had two, two additional speakers. We had Terry Sanders, who's SVP of Marketing and Communications from HIMSS. And we also had Dr. Gita Nair, who um, I think has been on CNN quite often. And she, and she is Executive Medical Director for Salesforce. And so it was such a great conversation because we had three really different perspectives. And, and the, one of the takeaways for me was, A, I mean, healthcare is hands down one of the most exciting spaces to be in right now. You combine that with technology and you're just kind of fundamentally changing like the you know, human lives at such a fundamental level. And then um, the other piece of this is how rife this area is with mis and disinformation. And there's so many challenges around messaging and so many places where you know, one wrong message could just completely deter you know, the, the trajectory of, of a therapeutic, a, a vaccine rollout as we're seeing, people's response to a, to a pandemic even, um, everything that we've seen over the last 12 months. Um, and, and I think so Jim's, Jim's kind of core point was like communication should be at the center of everything related to healthcare. Yeah, I mean, in, in I just in full transparency, I was the one that wrote the titles and the abstracts for these. So I felt like they matched what we wanted to talk about. And with Jim in particular, it is can great communication lead to better quote, did or parens digital health outcomes? Because we did want to bring a digital health flavor to it. And we have felt like the pandemic has fast forwarded digital health by at least two years, if not 10, <clears throat> because we've all gotten familiar with living in the Zoom box and using things like Instacart and, you know, streaming content through Netflix and others. Um, and he has been a big proponent of that. Like he's steeped in the science and we're steeped in the science and we work across all facets of clinical and commercial and, you know, the data and tech enablement piece. But at the end of the day, and this is a little bit of his legacy is, good communications, irrespective of the science and all that, are really what makes this move forward. And if you don't have good or clear or truthful communications, it makes everyone's job difficult. And I think not getting political, but everyone, it's part of what we had the difficulty with, you know, not just the last four years, but in particular, the last six to 12 months, with someone that did not place a premium on truthful or clear communications and had, you know, a different sort of understanding of the facts in a time where we needed the clearest communication possible because we were rolling out vaccines in record time. We were relying on, you know, teletherapeutics or, or digital therapeutics, telemedicine more than we ever had because people couldn't go into doctor's offices. So, you know, I, I won't harp too much on it because obviously Jim is my boss and it was our session, but, you know, we did really want to cover what role has that played. And then, you know, I liked drilling down into something like mental health, which then bled across into the panel with um, Dr. G and with Terry, because digital uh, mental health has become such a emblematic, you know, area of focus, thanks to COVID. COVID has exacerbated, it's made it a really sort of serious issue. I think people now take it much more seriously. Mm -hmm. People are now not afraid to do a telehealth session with a psychologist or a psychiatrist if they need uh, medication. And so that was some really robust conversation around that in addition to, as you started, we started with the misinformation and disinformation. And, you know, Dr. Dr. G gave us like some good, scary, but good examples about patients because she's a doctor um, that meeting them and just them using Dr. Google, right? And, yeah, and looking yep. at the wrong things. And so this isn't even a leader that's mis misleading us. It's technology or all the information that's out there without some sort of a Sherpa to oversee that and help us, you know, better understand what's good for us and what's not. You know, I I, I did a, a 
a podcast, I think it was last week, um, with um, someone from from the WHO um, out of out of um, kind of um, out of he was he's based out of Cairo actually, and it was interesting to hear him talk about kind of the misinformation and disinformation he's seeing, you know, on, on the continent in different countries and in Africa, and and just how like yeah, I mean, there's some there's healthcare because it is such a valuable asset, right? It's at the core of everyone's quality of life. It it is really really you know susceptible and. And people are hungry for information, and it's been such a challenging twelve months because, the you know we've been the the data is is we're getting it in real time and 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 it's being communicated, and because of that guidance keeps changing, and I think what's that that's also led to you know this erosion of trust, right? And yes, it was not helped in the United States by the fact that we did have um, you know a president who who undermined a lot of what what was you know a lot of the data that we were seeing before our eyes. And, and, and that created a bigger problem, but, but you're seeing this all over the world, right? I mean, people became skeptical when the guidance on masks shift or when, you know, one point we were told that the earliest we could expect a vaccine was in two years. And then suddenly we had one in November and then, you know, the anti-vax community was like, well, you know, this is rushed, you know, how can we trust this? These, what cut corners did you cut? So, I mean, we just, this last 12 months, I think has been just more cr crucial than ever. Good messaging is so critical for, for healthcare. And, and also just the, the inherent volatility of the scientific process, right? And having to communicate that to people. And it doesn't mean that people were wrong. It just means that the data showed different, you know, pointed us in a different direction. Yeah. Anyway, it was, uh, it was a great panel. And, uh, you know, it was nice to have the diversity of voices. It was nice, as you and I talked about, to have a diversity of the panel itself, right? Which yes. I think in and of itself is a nice message you and I talked about this, right? Because it is a frustrating thing not to sidebar, but I think it's relevant that we want to not only hear truthful voices, we also want to hear diverse voices and that can be young, old, it could be steeped in science, not steeped in science, but also, you know, black or brown skin, white skin from Asia, from, you know, South America. And one of the things you and I were talking a little bit about is it can be tricky scheduling events and conferences like this and actually getting the right diversity, you know, from a speaker perspective. And um, it is something that I've worked really hard on. South by Southwest has pushed me, you've pushed me, uh, but we did have a, a really sort of positive dialogue about this. And I think it is something where I know you're interested in sort of somewhere between uh, mandating and strongly encouraging, you know, future sponsors to bring diverse voices to the table. And I think yesterday, you know, you did a nice job, but there could have been more as there always could be. Uh, but it is something that I would say is more critical than ever. And it was nice to have some diversities of backgrounds and, you know, faces and, yeah. and all that good stuff. Yesterday. Well, and, and, and Aaron, to your point, like, I mean, when, when you start thinking outside of the box a little bit, you know, when, when, when you start feeling like, okay, we, we need some diversity, then you, then you end up getting diversity in a lot of different ways, right? So like we, having a doctor on the panel, you know, Dr. Naya or, or Dr. G, I guess as she likes to be called, you know, talking specifically about a patient experience and something that, you know, we, that, that perspective, if we had just st stuck with, you know, you know, another head of comms or another head of marketing, we would not have gotten that that on the ground experience of like what the doctors are hearing inside their in, inside the patient rooms, right? Um, so, I, I, yeah, I would encourage people to you know sometimes it, it is okay to veer outside of you know a traditional comms or marketing person. And you know, of course, Terry was so great because she she brought in you know a, a really strong point of view on messaging and the importance of messaging. But I think that was balanced really well with then 
Dr. G's, you know, on the ground example of like, yes, what Terry's saying is important. Let me tell you why. I had a patient come in and he was using, you know, these, you know, doc, like you said, Dr. Google to, um, to kind of inform him, his healthcare choices, which turned out to be quite detrimental to his, to his health, I, ironically enough. I um, so, so moving, moving along to the next session, um, this one again, like, so we went from healthcare to politics, which again, you know, it's not surprising, but um, this one was very much about the changing nature of public affairs and also of media. So we had the founder of Punchbowl News, Jake Sherman, um, and he um, worked at, I think it was Politico for a really long time. Yep. And, and he was talking about how kind of we've moved into this age, and I think we've been here for a while, but I think we've really seen it, especially on the political landscape over the last 12 months. Uh, kind of the the era of the of the individual creator, right? I mean, with with Punchbowl no, News, Jake has as much of an audience that he did at Politico with a much much smaller staff. And it, what to me was also interesting about how he talked about, you know, we, the last president in particular probably moved us away from this both sides journalism, because you know journalists really need to think about is it how productive it is is it for them to to spread disinformation just because, you know, someone in, in, in a place of authority said it, right? Um, and then, of course, we also talked about public affairs and how that's become far less transactional and how, you know, these decisions are being made not just in one room, but, you know, in, in so many different places and over, through so many different layers and how that sort of changed the game um, for, for, for that discipline. Yeah. Uh, so yes to everything you just said. I had a couple of interesting points about this. First of all, just this sort of gets to that meta conference um, point, you know, listening to who people are. So yes, uh, right now, you know, Jake is the, the founder and CEO of Punchbowl and Daniel Schwartz is at Hill and Milton but he was the director of strategic communications for the House Judici Judiciary Committee, right? Knowing that Jake had been at Politico and that Daniel was on, you know, on Capitol Hill. And, and by the way, Jake was actually coming to us live from Capitol Hill yesterday mm -hmm. as yes, part of which I also thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. But it's like understanding the context of who people are. I think that is a really important thing. And so I know we do, we have gotten into this age of short shrifting introductions. When we bring people on, we expect that people are going to go and read their bios. I think it is good to make sure you read people's bios and make sure you give enough context around someone so they're not defined by what they did last, right? That if they right. do, you know, have like some meaningful background that doesn't make them any better of a person, but it gives a little more gravitas or a little bit more context as to where they're coming from. A couple of the other things that I thought were interesting, um, one of which was, um, I think Paul had asked them about, you know, tribalized politics. Mm -hmm. And obviously we lived through significantly tribalized politics. And Jake was the one that mentioned that he thought this started back in 2010 and 11. And I actually agree with that. Um, we, we really started this polarization, this extreme polarization in politics, I would say at the beginning of the Bush, uh, uh, George W. Bush uh, era. But when, when Obama came into office, it pissed a lot of people off. There was an opportunity to have more collaboration. We sort of forced uh, the Affordable Care Act down people's throats with the supermajority, and then no one wanted to collaborate after that. And that had repercussions in the press as well, right? So you had this very us versus them, the Fox News, the Breitbarts, um, and then you had, you know, CNBC or um, uh, MSNBC and CNN and everyone else. 
<clears throat> and so I, I think it's helpful to know that from a, a historical context, this wasn't a brand new thing. This has been going on for a while. The other was, and this was less obvious and you touched on it, but the no more closed rooms and that the single tweet could change events. That was the thing, the phenomena that yep. he who shall not be named really brought to the table. And it was interesting. And I think there was some good about it as much as I personally don't like him as a person and, and really loathed his leadership style. He did bring a lot of the conversations out into the open and allowed a lot more people to weigh in on these conversations. Now, the way he did it was not particularly productive, but I think there is a benefit to him really bringing social media into the mix and allowing for conversations to be influenced and taken, you know, upon on a, a variety of different levels without I will step off my podium. Yes, yes. Well, okay. So I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm going to call one thing out that you said, and that was for ACA being forced on our throats. That was actually a pretty, I mean, like nobody was happy with the final bill with ACA. The, the, the left thought that it was, it was basically a Republican bill, right? The right thought it was like socialized healthcare, which was so far from that. So in some ways you could argue that that, I mean, yes, you know, the, the, the supermajority and, you know, some of what Pelosi said at the time was, you know, people were able to kind of run with it and, 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 and weaponize. But but it, but I, I always think back to that because it's like that made everybody unhappy because it was such a watered down bill in some ways that the right was and it, most a lot of their fears were unfounded and then you look to present day right and ACA is hugely popular so you know it, it was a little bit of feeding Americans their veg, vegetables like you know everyone nobody you know pre existing conditions you know harmed everybody basically right and so i don't know so 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 yeah that i, I just i just wanted to, to point out you know like how so i'm actually in, in violent agreement with you i mentioned it because it it did get rammed down it was not everyone's cup of tea ironically you know in my original state of massachusetts it was governor yep, mitt it romney who founded mm -hmm. it and then had to turn his back on it yeah my point being it did create a hyper politicized yeah. environment because that was when we, you know, the Democrats with the supermajority said, We're, we are not going to take any of your comments, Republicans. And that started that real extremism, I thought, and that bled out into the media coverage of what happened at that time. We, 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 we are going on a tangent, but I, I think that that no matter anything Obama would have done would have been hyper-politicized. And I do think Obama was aware of that as well. And that's why he basically wrote a Republican bill. Like he said, he's, you know, so, um, all right. So, but that, that that is a tangent, Aaron, you and I will have to talk about ACA over drinks another time. Um, but, you know, going back to your point about, you know, the, the gravitas of people's backgrounds and, and yes, you know, we sort of do take for granted now that people are going to look and they're going to see, you know, um, you know, both Jake Sherman's background and also Daniel Schwartz. I mean, he also worked on the, on the Hillary campaign, I believe, um, in, in addition to being, um, you know, on the, on the House uh, Judiciary Committee. So, yeah, I mean, it, so you, th th this conversation had a lot of weight and, and everyone involved um, kind of spoke from, from places of great authority. Um, I, I, I like to believe that, you know, pretty much not, you know, pretty much everyone that we have speak at our events sort of has gravitas in whatever sector they're in. And so I do encourage people to take that moment to look at their, at their bios. Um, one last thing I'll say here about, about Twitter is it's interesting because, you know, Trump did sort of normalize, right? Like pol politicians using Twitter to like, you know, balloon, test balloon policies and, and ideas. Um, but then you have someone like Biden who uses his, tw I mean, his Twitter feed is basically just like a bunch of platitudes about unity and, um, you know, these kind of feel good statements for the most part. Um, and, and yet, you know, and, and he can effectively govern one would, you know, it seems. Um, so, you know, the necessity of 
of how how active politicians have to be on platforms like this, I think is, a, is an interesting question to look at. Um, although I, I will say I'm sure that his team monitors Twitter very, very closely um, and, and can see when things are, you know, which direction things are trending um, from well, there. Well, I could argue just to split that hair one more time is maybe it's less impactful or important for a president to be doing that. And maybe it's more important, maybe even specifically for Congress people, mm -hmm. since they are really the leaders of the people and to be in touch with what the sentiment is and to actually be able to respond, right? Not to say senators shouldn't or Supreme Court justices, but you know, if you think about them, maybe governors, maybe mayors, you know, and, and I I think boring platitudes right now are pretty welcome, but you're right. At the same time, is that adding a ton to the conversation? I don't know. But I think everyone realized we're done with the extremism. And so we were going to course correct into the opposite direction. Right. So, all right. So, so let's, let's quickly touch on, on, on this last session. And this was really um, about, about leadership and sort of innovating. And I think the, the headline was innovating in, in sort of real time, but the key takeaway for me was from the research. And this was sponsored by we, and they did a research where they, um, where they surveyed, I think it was 300. 300 executives. Exacts, yeah. Yeah, and when I think this was with in partnership with courts, and one of the things that really stood out to me was how leaders are taking a much more introspective look and kind of really analyzing their own motivations um, as part of their leadership style. And I think you know it was, it was a few years ago that we were talking about the empathetic leaders, right? And they were sort of trying to look out outside and trying to kind of you know put themselves in other people's shoes. Um, including, you know, stakeholders and particularly, you know, employees and in the, in the broader community um, outside of shareholders. And now I've been so interested about this idea that now leaders are looking inward and kind of trying to figure out what their own motivations are. And is there a gap between their intentions and their actions? Yeah, I mean, this was a good way to end the session. And I loved, you know, I love that they brought research to the table. I thought that was actually very clever. And I liked um, Molly McKenna John Drain, if that's, um, you know, how you say her name, you know, a lot of the thoughts that she brought to the mix. I, I heard that introspective one as well, as well as bringing more stakeholders to the table and listening more. So there was a question that was asked, and I think it was um, by Diana around CEOs and their role. And I do feel like given there was always an all, already a trend toward more purpose, you know, from a company. Uh, millennials have sort of, they're the ones that are credited with driving this, but I think there's some truth to that. I would say the pandemic and, and then Black Lives Matter and the whole racial injustice movement made all leaders take a step back and really look at themselves in the mirror and think, what do I stand for? And do my, what my beliefs stand for mirror those of the companies? I think in most cases, you'd like to see that there's at least some synergy, right? And I think looking at some of those points and thinking about that um, were critical. And then there was one other that um, one other quote from Molly that I really liked, and this was actually tweeted. And she said, we need to give back to communities, and that's what customers expect today. It's no longer an option. It's part of why businesses are successful or not successful, which is, didn't get said. But I think it was a, an important point that really got stressed during across a couple of sessions yesterday but it is something that the pandemic highlighted right where people realized the government on a lot of levels was not giving them what they needed and they did turn to business and i think we've been doing this for probably eight or ten years anyway and just that importance of like a company stepping in and doing the right thing and a lot of times starting with the ceo 
she or he making that statement, that proclamation, talking what they're committing to, and then standing behind those actions. And it's nice to hear, you know, McDonald's is not everyone's cup of tea, and they've certainly done some good and bad things in the world, like a lot of companies have. But, you know, I think having them represented and having them stand behind that and really think about what that means. And I know they've worked hard on sustainability and healthier food and all of those things, but that, that really um, stuck out to me. Yeah. And, you know, and I think it's, it's interesting because this conversation, I feel like to your point, I feel like didn't even start with COVID. Right. I mean, I think it started, I mean, from our end, we saw when, um, you know, when, when the Trump administration started, right. There was this, there were, we, a lot of consumers felt like there was a void in our government and they looked to the private sector to step in on things like LGBTQ rights on things like climate change. Right. Um, And, and one of the things that I've been trying to follow is, you know, now that you know we're, we're, we're you know, we're we're back, you know, and 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 you know the Paris Climate Agreement, and you know, LGBTQ rights are not under the same fire that they were and under the previous administration. Will this take the pressure off of companies, or you know, wh- is the toothpaste out of the you know out of the tube, right? And and con- consumer expectations are forever changed. And I think you're right. I think it's also been complicated by the pandemic. And also the Black Lives Matter movement, because as we've learned, I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement started under President Obama, right? I mean, it's not like you elect a president and these problems go away. And I think that's been the realization that people have had that, you know, the, the problems we had that we that came to light during the Trump administration were there during Obama and, of course, before. And they're not going away just because we have a new president. So, um so yeah, so that's that's our day. Um, uh, I feel like I'm looking at the time, and I realize we've we, we've talked for well over 30 minutes, and I always try to keep these short and sweet. Um, any final thoughts, Aaron? No, I think we've covered them. I mean, uh, it was like I said, great content. I strongly encourage people to go back and read the recaps, watch the videos. Uh, you'll come away with at least you know a, a dozen really deep, interesting thoughts that hopefully will impact how you do your jobs. And just to echo what you said, Arthi, you do always do a great job at finding people that do bring gravitas, you know, that are really smart. I think there were a couple that in particular really stood out to me yesterday. And I think that's always the case at any event where they're all good, but there are some that are particularly good. And and you had a few yesterday. So Mm -hmm. um, thank you all for bringing that great content to us. Well, this was fun, Aaron, as usual. And we'll, we'll, we'll do this again next time. Next time there's an event for us to recap. In one of these days in person again. Yes, indeed. All right, well, we'll be back soon with another episode of the Provoke Media Podcast. You have been listening to the Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent, and easy-to-use PR software. Get a free demo today at notified.com.